0: And thanks for listening.
2: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate change can be scary and overwhelming. Luckily, one of the simplest ways to fight it is as easy as riding a bike.
0: If there's one thing that you can do, one thing as an individual to have an impact on climate change, it is to bike commute.
2: Cities and smaller communities alike are working hard to encourage more people to bike more often. There's a global movement toward what's called 8-to-80
3: cities and that communities are truly bike-friendly when someone who's 8 years
2: old and someone who's 80 years old feel comfortable biking there. And the benefits of biking go beyond reducing carbon pollution.
4: You see your community reflected. You have conversations that you wouldn't otherwise have. You know, the act of riding gives me hope. Why two
2: wheels are better than four up next on climate one how bicycle friendly can we make our cities and communities welcome to climate one changing the conversation about America's energy economy and environment I'm Devon Strolovich climate one conversations with oil companies and environmentalists Republicans and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Across the country, bike commuting grew 60% from 2000 to 2013. That growth happened in some surprising places, including chilly Minneapolis and steamy New Orleans. Despite that increase nationally, less than 1% of commuters take a bike once a week. The cultural and demographic trends suggest American cities will have more cyclists on the road. Urban planners and people working on climate change hope that pretends the future. They say bicycles are key to creating more walkable neighborhoods and reducing carbon pollution from transportation, which accounts for about a quarter of national emissions. Joining Greg today are three people who favor a new balance between cars and bikes. Amy Harcourt is founder of Bikes Make Life Better, a firm that works with companies to get their employees riding bikes to and around work. Her clients include Airbnb, Microsoft, LinkedIn, and Salesforce. Kaylee Quinn is co-founder and executive director of Climate Ride, a philanthropic organization that mobilizes riders around the country to raise awareness about clean energy. Brian Wiedenmeyer is executive director of the San Francisco Bike Coalition, which advocates for bike lanes and other infrastructure that makes bike commuting more appealing and safe. Here's our conversation about why two wheels are better than four.
1: Amy Harcourt, let's begin with you. Uh, you grew up in the Midwest. You rode your bike everywhere, and then you dumped your bike at a certain age. Why?
3: That would be 16. I dumped <laughs> it at 16 to get that driver's license and start driving. And honestly, I didn't go back to riding a bike until I was 40.
1: And why did you come back to the bicycle at 40?
3: Um, mostly for sport and recreation. I, you know, took, on, took it on with a couple of friends, and I got really interested and started doing very long sport and recreational rides and really enjoyed it. And then ultimately, that turned into bike commuting, but
1: that was never the intention. Mm-hmm. Kaylee Quinn, you grew up in Florida. Are bikes legal
0: in Florida? I mean, people... <laughs> Florida is not known for its bike culture, to say the (laughs) least. And I did not really ride a bike as a child. But after college, I ended up working for a bicycling company, an active travel company, and spent about 12 years bicycling all over the world. And it was my experience riding my bike in China, which led me to start Climate Ride.
1: Interesting. And what was it about riding your bike in China?
0: You know, it... Was it a time 2005 or so when China was undergoing a major transition from a car culture from bike culture to a car culture and the pollution was astounding in Beijing and in smaller cities, we would ride our bikes into a town of a million people that wasn't on a map and uh, that recognition made me realize in the United States. Um, We are so, you know, our issues were so fortunate, and there was very little awareness about climate change as a major issue. So I wanted to gather people to ride their bikes to Washington, D.C., to raise awareness of climate change. And bicyclists are the perfect people to do that, because they are already on the track and doing something that can be so powerful in terms of reducing climate emissions.
1: Brian Weedmeyer, you also grew up in the Midwest. Uh, so tell us about your young um, relationship with a bike and then you know, whether you also l- let it go when you could get wheels.
4: Yeah, I think or, just like Amy at 16, um, you turn that magical age and you have access to personal freedom, the automobile, the American dream. Um, and we've really built our cities, especially small towns and suburbs in the Midwest around that car. Um, uh, I started riding my bike in Chile, Minneapolis actually um, as a freshman at the University of Minnesota. And I did it not because it was an environmental choice, although um, I certainly had those values then. But really for affordability, I think sometimes we forget um, that biking after walking is the second most affordable way to get around. Um, and when you're working your way through college, it certainly is an appealing choice.
1: So tell us the, the national trends. Uh, bike commuting is up, but that's kind of like solar is up from a very tiny base. One, about 1% of Americans uh, get their energy from solar. You know, 1% of Americans might commute. So tell us the big picture in terms of bike commuting in American cities, Brian.
4: Yeah, it is on the rise, and um, Minneapolis is a great example where you have higher than 1%. It still you know, sounds relatively small at 4 or 5%. Here in San Francisco, we're at over 4% of all trips taken by bicycle. Um, and those numbers are growing, and they're growing fast. Uh, 10% growth here in San Francisco in just the last year in the terms of the number of trips taken by bike. And as you, you mentioned in your opening, um, 60% growth nationwide. So um, while those numbers are small, we're seeing exponential growth when compared to other modes in terms of private auto trips, um, even relative to transit and walking.
1: And what's the age distribution? Is it more younger people? Is it older people? Uh, well,
4: what's The, the f- fastest growing group of people biking is 65 and older, <laughs> according to the U.S. Census. But, um, you know, I think there are some stereotypes about who bikes in our cities and that they're young, they're male, um, they're physically fit and active. And um, what we actually find when people do research is that um, People who bike reflect by and large people who live in cities so um, uh, those young techies, uh, commuting, uh, or the, the, the young affluent folks commuting may be the most visible during those commute hours, but spread throughout the day, all different types of people are biking in our cities.
1: Yeah. Amy Harcourt, tell us what you're doing with, uh, tech companies here in, uh, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Uh, and why are companies, why do they care? Um, you know, there's, I guess there's some policy pressure to n- get people out of their cars because parking garages are expensive. So what are the companies doing with you and why?
3: Exactly. Yeah. So they have huge pressure to, um, not have so many people arrive to work in their cars. So we do everything related to bikes. So helping bike commuters um, when they arrive at work, having great end of trip facilities. So I know if I ride my bike to work, I have a great experience. I can arrive. I have a safe and convenient and secure place to put it. There's a place for me to clean up. It's fully accepted. I'm not considered a, you know a weirdo, which was you know the case not so long ago. That it's more accepted. It's more ingrained into the culture. Um, We also do all sorts of things. People are often afraid to ride, you know, those people who are interested but concerned. um, Those employees, we help them with bike safety, helping them with routing. We put together group rides so they have buddies and people to ride with. We do classes around bike safety and the very basics of bike mechanics. Um, We run on-site bike shops. We also do um, helping getting around during the day. That's a really big one, particularly in Silicon Valley where companies are growing and the footprint's getting so big. It's really, it takes a lot of time to get from building to building. You have a meeting to go to, you're not going to drive your car, it's too far to walk. So we do big campus bike fleets to help get around and just The efficiencies alone are savings. But to your point, your question of why would companies do it? There are all kinds of financial benefits, Um, the the, the wellness benefits, the productivity gains, the savings in transportation, parking alone. You know, a parking space in a parking structure costs $40,000 for one car. You can fit 8 to 10 bicycles in the same space. Um, Reduction in sick days, turnover. Um, In key areas where companies are fighting for top talent, having a strong transportation program and a really solid bike program actually becomes one of those draws as they're recruiting and trying to attract top talent.
1: Kaylee Quinn, you have companies that uh, sponsor teams on the Climate Ride. I saw Solar City. I've done the Climate Ride 2016. Did it again in 2017. Uh, so tell us about the corporate involvement with uh, your Climate Ride. Companies that are just clean energy companies. You don't have any coal companies, I guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We'd welcome it. <laughs> um, it's sort of what Amy was saying. Companies see a real opportunity to do employee well-being and also um, philanthropy, mm-hmm. and so encouraging their employees to take on a life-changing experience that really is transformational for everyone involved. And we talked about the 1% on average in the US and Canada of people who do urban commuting. And if there's one thing that you can do, one thing as an individual to have an impact on climate change it is to bike commute. Uh, the, the, the figures are astounding. If we can get to a 20 to 30 percent rate of people bike commuting in this country, we're looking at 11 to 15 percent reduction in transportation emissions. And that's huge from taking something that's very inexpensive to do. And when companies are, uh, or big, or sorry, the, the government is looking at large transportation projects, they often overlook cycling infrastructure because right. it's such a an inexpensive part of the project. So it really comes down to cities and mayors who have a true sense of what companies need to recruit people. Other stakeholders in this are realtors who are looking at the real estate market for where people want to live. And they're the ones who are seeing how sustainability... Um, and uh, public health in in cities are impacted by having a strong bike commuting system. So literally, at a city level, it's where all this action is happening. And um, it's astounding that one person riding a bike, an inexpensive bike, can change all of this. Yeah.
1: Brian Wiedemeyer, I've done lots of changes uh, to my life, solar, on the roof, electric cars, don't eat red meat rarely, Uh, and I could bike commute, but I don't. Mm I'm a f- middle-aged guy, afraid of getting doored, I, and so what it te- help me, a little group therapy here, help me get over my fear yeah. of not getting nailed in the two-mile commute to my sustainability job. I should be doing it, but I'm afraid.
4: Yeah. Well, you're not alone, Greg. Um, and We know uh, when we talk to people and ask them what's preventing you from riding your bike to work or anywhere else, safety is always the number one um, answer that comes up. And uh, cities and and our our country and government needs to change that, and it really does come back to infrastructure. So at the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, um, we work very hard to build the kind of infrastructure in our city streets that keeps people who ride safe and protected. So it's really about physical separation um, and providing um, that both actual safety, there's uh, data and research that shows those types of bike lanes that are physically separated from auto traffic are safer, but also the perception of safety, yeah. so that it removes that barrier, that fear of I may get you know hit by a car or you know it's scary and loud in our city streets.
3: Can I add something to you that? Know, when I moved to San Francisco, so I was this you know recreational cyclist, and I came with a road bike. I was terrified, mm-hmm. just like you. I I lived in the city and I wanted to ride in the city and I didn't know what to do, and I went to the San Francisco Bike Coalition and I took a free Mm three-hour class and it literally changed my life. This was pre-bikes make life better, but that's what turned me into a bike commuter. I rode to the class. I was terrified. I left the class three hours later and I was so comfortable on the street because I learned all the ways to be safe just within three hours.
4: Education is a part of it too, but I think what you're seeing in cities across the country, we were talking about that explosive growth, the fastest growing uh, mode of transportation, Um, still small, but it really is that infrastructure that's making the difference, and the innovations in terms of physical separation and protection from auto traffic.
1: Bicis del Pueblo is a San Francisco-based organization that helps people in low-income areas recover and fix abandoned bikes. Hugo Vargas is a
5: volunteer with the group and a high school student. Let's listen. My name's Hugo Vargas, Uh, I'm 18 years old. I actually got into mountain biking last year, so let's say 2015, two years ago. And from there it took off, my love for this sport skyrocketed. I was an eight year old when I got my first bike. And you know, I fell in love with it. When I got my first bike, I knew nothing. Like I remember I got a flat and I was like, what do I do? Do I get a new bike or what do I do? And present day, I can tell you how to fix a flat and how to make sure your derailleurs don't get rusted or how to properly lube your chain. And it's this whole bike thing that's expanded in my life. And now I'm, I'm proud of being a bike nerd. So it's awesome, it's awesome. Bis de Pueblo is a collaboration, you know, that's how we got our bikes. And these are bikes that have haven't been claimed, that have been stolen and you know just left on the streets. And we refurbish them and we give them out to the community and we also have people come in so they could pick their bikes and you know build them from there. Are
1: you going gear, no? Okay, you're going high gear
5: and we're here today at San Francisco Community School at 125 Excelsior Street. It's our bike workshop, our uh, earn a bike uh, day, and uh, you know, without this program, I couldn't have fixed the flat I couldn't fix before, or I couldn't have changed my brake levers, or you know, every time I come back, I'm just getting better and better and better. You can have the dopest bike and have the biggest ego, and then you have this kid who has a, like a crummy BMX bike, but they're riding bikes, right? As long as you get on a bike, it doesn't really matter because you're having fun. That
1: was Hugo Vargas, a volunteer and high school student, uh, a volunteer with Bises de Pueblo in San Francisco. Brian Wiedemeyer, he that challenges the notion that all bicyclists tend to be Caucasian, upper middle class, etc. So is that really true?
4: Yeah, well, and in fact, we work with BC Del Pueblo um, as a partner to redistribute those reclaimed bikes that Hugo was talking about. Yeah, I, again, you know, I, I mentioned earlier the stereotype of who bikes in our cities um, and across our country. And um, it, one of the things we talk about in our work is something called the invisible cyclist. So the person you may not see in that commute, uh, think about somebody that works a late night shift as a dishwasher, for example, and needs to get home uh, after transit stopped running. Um, that person relies on their bike to get from their job. And in a time when there's increasing costs of living in our cities, that bicycle can be a lifeline for people to hang on and survive. We're hearing about cities, bikes, and climate
2: change. This is Climate One. You can subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about bike culture and climate change with Amy Harcourt, founder of Bikes Make Life Better, Kaylee Quinn, co-founder and executive director of Climate Ride, and Brian Wiedenmeyer, executive director of the
1: San Francisco Bike Coalition. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Amy Harcourt, you touched on the idea of identity recently, uh, talking about people who who bike to work, and there's something of a perception that maybe. People of a certain uh, seniority, or it's younger people bike. I remember the first time I took started using bike share around downtown San Francisco, and I, and I got on it, and I was kind of wearing business clothes, and I feel like, do I look like a dork? Do I look like a tourist? <laughs> right? What if I see someone I know? I'm like, oh my God, they'll see me riding a bicycle. You know, <laughs> terrible, right? But tell us about the, you know the identity. There's a bit of a you know identity about who bikes and whether that's cool or the culture at your job.
3: Yeah, I think things have really changed in that realm. I think for a long time, it was so marginalized. There were so few people doing it that it was like, oh, you're one of like you know the 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 lycra the lycra clad, yeah, right. you know. Um, and it, and it tended to be more women and younger. And but that's really changed. And there's you know there's a global movement toward what's called eight to eighty cities, and that um, communities are truly bike friendly when someone who's eight years old and someone who's eighty years old feel comfortable biking there and we're seeing much more of a split so I think if you head out into almost any city and our um, or you ride public transportation that's twinned up with um, bikes and you look to see who those bike commuters are you see a great spread um, in terms of gender age ethnicity I think it's what Brian was saying that it really does
1: represent the community but, Brian, you know, America has a deep romance with the car. <laughs> and, you know, is that a romance that they're going to break up, end? Or? It
4: had a romance with the bicycle before it had a romance <laughs> with the car. Um, you know, our streets were not built for cars originally. They were built for horses. But certainly bicycles were one of the things that helped roads first be developed and paved in our country. So um, if, if our memories go back a little bit longer, um, we know that this country is capable of getting around in lots of different ways. Um, certainly we have uh, built our cities in the 20th century you <laughs> Around the automobile, and um, the great project of the 21st century, I think, is building out those cities for other modes of transportation, and the bicycle being one of them.
1: So, give us some examples. There's Barcelona uh, superblocks, Mexico City. Give us some examples of cities around North America and what they're doing mm-hmm. innovative to either have protected bike lanes mm-hmm. or or making redistributing that balance of power and real estate on American
4: city streets. Sure. So, one of the the densest city in this country, New York City. I was just there in April. Um, uh, Manhattan is been transformed in the past few years with a network of physically protected and separated bike lanes. Sometimes that means moving the row of parked cars from the curb um, over so that you can fit a bike lane in between the curb and those parked cars. And that's something we call a parking protected bike lane. Um, Or in the case of Vancouver uh, in British Columbia uh, has a network of protected bike lanes in its downtown core. um, And they are using um, planters and concrete uh, planters with foliage and greenery really attractive um, uh, to physically separate that bike lane from auto travel. Um, Those are just two uh, cities as diverse as Chicago, New Orleans, you mentioned, the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul, Austin. All across this country, we are seeing city leaders and advocates working together um, to really transform uh, the fabric of our, our streetscapes to accommodate more people biking.
1: It's even happening in Detroit, the Motor City. Uh, You go there, of course, Shinola is from a pretty cool company that makes bikes and watches and many cool things. Uh, And is is it happening there as well?
4: Yeah, Detroit uh, is uh, a leader. um, And you've got smaller cities, too. So not just our big cities, but places like Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, that have been real leaders in this movement for better and uh, higher quality infrastructure for people who bike.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, bike sharing. That's something that's uh, happening across the country. There's a company called Motivate based in San Francisco. They operate bike sharing uh, in Washington, D.C. Number of of cities, they have 1.5 million shares. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's annually or cumulatively in, in New York City, 340,000. In uh, Washington D.C. about 350 in uh, in Chicago. Uh, Amy Harcourt, the Bay Area actually is down there pretty low, 28,000, just ahead of Jersey City. Ouch! So (laughs) yeah, it's about to change. And interestingly enough,
3: you know, talking about like Detroit and the Motor City and our American love affair with cars. Ford, you know, as a branding as a mobility company and being the big title sponsor for the expansion of the Motivate Bay Area program is really quite interesting. They're a car company, but they're going to brand themselves over how many bikes brands 7000 7, throughout uh, the bay area.
1: Yeah.
4: Forty yeah. five hundred just in San Francisco. And so,
1: Brian we what's why why is a car company sponsoring a bike share program? W-
4: well, I think <laughs> for, you know Ford. Uh, Ford is reading the tea leaves, and certainly in our urban center centers, um, they're seeing that um, the future of transportation isn't private auto ownership. I was going to say, if you yeah. can't
3: beat them,
1: join them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bill Ford said that on this stage when he was here we, about car sharing. Didn't get to yeah.
4: bike sharing. Car sharing, bike sharing. Um, you know, Ford has all sorts of uh, new innovative ideas that I, they've talked to us about in terms of what they're calling smart mobility and really rethinking the way people get around in cities.
1: Kaylee Quinn, tell us about when you were riding through Pennsylvania during the election, the presidential election, riding through Pennsylvania, and what was that experience like and and what did what kind of people did you encounter as this, you know, bunch of um Uh, crunchy environmental people were riding through their (laughs) uh, their neighborhood through their red
0: red. (laughs) Boy, we looked crunchy um you know (laughs) it it was it was fascinating because the, the pace of a bicycle allows you to really observe and we were riding through pennsylvania and every single sign was a trump sign we didn't see a single hillary clinton sign except for a couple Hillary for prison signs uh, for hundreds of miles. Mm -hmm. And so everyone on that ride knew before the election exactly what was going to happen. And uh, and I really think that in terms of uniting us again, and I think bikes and climate coalescing movements, which is an important part of what needs to happen right now, um, getting our elected officials out on bikes, experiencing rural America, and understanding why it's so different from urban America. But I do think many of the solutions that uh, Brian and Amy are talking about work in small rural Mm -hmm. communities. I live in a town of 8,000, and we're putting in a protected bike lane. We also have, um, we're working on a um, a, a city climate action plan. Mm -hmm. And that's a great area for bike coalitions to intersect with the climate movement. Because bike coalitions need to be involved in climate action plans. The big cities are now having them, but the smaller towns, mm. they're developing them as well. And, and bikes are going to be a huge bike's part
4: of not, that. Uh, biking and, and the benefits of biking are not just about uh, climate or the environment, as you talked about before. Bikes mean jobs. They do. Biking mm. is a huge industry in the United States uh, between retail, between manufacturing, um, all of the studies that have been done on the economic impacts of cycling on commercial corridors. Uh, people who bike to shop uh, spend more money on average than people right. who drive. So, um, if, if an economic, if an environmental argument isn't resonating, there's an economic argument to be made too. Mm-hmm. And in small, you know, small towns or places that are um, suffering economically, biking can be a boon.
1: So help me out with that one. I'll challenge that one. The people sure. who bike spend more so does that mean you like load up on jewelry that's like things <laughs> that are like doesn't easy to carry but that they cost a lot of money do you think that you can load up your, your car with a bunch of stuff mm-hmm.
0: well bike touring and then there's also in urban areas uh people always talk about oh if you take out that parking lot it's going to wreck my my business those mm-hmm. two parking right. spots they tend to make more pass-bys right. of the business or other sorts of businesses develop you know Um, small places to eat, things like that. With bicycle touring, especially in rural America, it can revitalize towns. A bike tour comes through with several hundred people, and all these people are overnighting. They're eating. They tend to spend, I think it's $70 more, um, Per, it's every couple of days than a regular tourist does. They're so hungry. They're, spending, they're, 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 hungrier. Hungrier. they're eating <laughs> a lot of food, <laughs> <right. laughs> um, and they engage with the community. So in a way, it's definitely in the quiver for retooling uh, small communities in America.
1: And Kaylee Quinn, you live in Montana, a kind of a purple part of Montana near a national park. Um, so it's kind of natural there, right, for, to be near a natural national park for that to happen. And does it work for other rural parts? I mean, you, you know, r- national parks are kind of a special place that lend yeah. themselves to that kind of uh, activity.
0: Yeah, I'd say we're purple. I mean, when we decided to do, uh, redo our downtown and have bump outs to create bicycle parking and protected walkways for pedestrians, yeah. uh, a petition went around called Keep Whitefish SUV Friendly. <laughs> oh f- because we were removing two parking spots i think <laughs> per block
1: this is whitefish montana and
0: so <laughs> you know I, I would say you know i i think it does have great impacts um for and potential for areas there are many bike rides i've been put in in rural parts of montana idaho that bring in people and you know there's incredible beauty to be you know experienced um so the economic impact of tourism is in the millions of dollars for sure. For there state. also
1: was a there also was a legislative effort in Montana to uh, make biking uh, more difficult. Tell us or out loud on certain two-lane roads. Kaylee Quinn, tell us about that.
0: Yes, that did receive national attention <laughs> uh, Our legislature meets every two years, so there's always something exciting they 're working on or diverting our attention from other things and so uh you know that is that's the that's the the urban rural divide you know this the, the mm-hmm. college towns like Missoula and Bozeman and places like whitefish everyone wants bikes because it brings jobs, mm-hmm. you know especially in rural america you're seeing people who Uh, work from home more or work for tech companies but are, you know, living in small towns and they want bikes and they want access and they want it safe. For children commuting, Mm -hmm. what were the commute rates Uh, for bike commuting to school? It was 50% in the late 60s and now it's 10% or less. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... That, that simply has to change. So back to what our legislature did. They wanted to ban bicycles on two-lane roads in Montana until they really realized that it's all two-lane roads. <laughs> and it was, it was going to ban wheelchairs, any, anyone using a, a road in Montana. Uh, so it was actually, uh, supposedly the representative did it as a joke. And it ended up being attached to a bill um, and then uh, was taken out later. So. You deal with that kind of stuff (laughs) in Montana.
1: We're talking about bicycling in small towns and large towns in the United States with Amy Harcourt, Kaylee Quinn, and Bryden Weedmeyer. I'm Greg Dalton. This is Climate One. It's time for our lightning round. In the first part, I will mention a thing or phrase, and our guests will blurt out the first word or phrase that (laughs) comes to their mind, unfiltered and with complete disregard for what their mom, their boss, or anyone else will think. (laughs) Yes. So first for Kaylee Quinn, middle-aged men in Lycra.
0: Um, They do make baggy shorts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Amy Harcourt, bike-sharing programs with docs at fixed locations. Old school. Brian Wiedemeyer, San Francisco Mayor Ed Lee. Mustache. (laughs) (laughs) Amy Harcourt, paying employees to bike to work. Not a bad idea. Kaylee Quinn, Lance Armstrong. Uh. (laughs) <laughs> what a dope <laughs> oh. Now for the second well, part uh, Of our lightning round I'll ask a question Of our guests And they will answer True or false Kaylee Quinn Bicycles are Preventative medicine True Brian Weedmeyer, Too often Bike manufacturers Focus on sports And performance bikes Over commuting bikes
4: True And to their peril
1: <laughs> Amy Harcourt True or false Some bicyclists Are total jerks When they interact With motorists True. Brian Wiedenmeyer, many cyclists flout traffic laws. False. He said many. Many. Yes.
4: Same rights <laughs> as anybody else. All any. road users. That's right.
1: So. Fact checkers will weigh in on that one. Kaylee um, <laughs> Quinn, the environmental movement struggles to move beyond its base of white men and women.
0: True.
1: Brian Wiedenmeyer, you have taken a date out on your bicycle. Two people, one bike. False. I did that in China. Uh, They didn't they didn't last very long. Um, Kaylee Quinn, uh, true or false. When you were married, you and your husband exchanged mountain bikes rather than wedding rings. True. (laughs) Amy Harcourt, true or false. You have given the finger to a motorist in recent memory. False. Brian Wiedemeyer, true or false. (laughs) You have flipped the bird at a driver in recent memory.
4: False, but I was spit on the other day by an Uber driver. Ooh.
1: Ooh. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Last question. Kaylee Quinn, you don't dare flip off drivers in Montana. True. (laughs) Because you might get shot.
0: False. (laughs) Okay.
1: All right, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round of applause. (laughs) There's a lot of talk these days about robotic cars and how they're going to change the way we get around. So, uh, Brian Wiedemeyer, is that a good thing, robotic cars? There's a lot of excitement in technology circles about how these things are coming and they're going to change our
4: world. Yeah, autonomous vehicles, another name for that, a self-driving car. Um, And certainly um, here in San Francisco, we've seen them on our streets already. Um, The long-term promise, I think, for autonomous vehicles is one of safety. Right, we know that over 90% of traffic collisions are caused by human error. So if you take that human error out of the equation, there's the potential to make our roads much safer. I would say on the flip side, an autonomous vehicle is still a vehicle. It still has an internal combustion engine. It still takes up the same space on our roads and streets Um, And and so, you know, the impact on our street doesn't change dramatically in terms of emissions, in terms of uh, square footage and usage and wear and tear. Um, So I, I think the promise of autonomous vehicles is one of improved safety. Um, and and possibly um, lessening congestion. But whatever we do, we need to make sure that the safety of people who walk and people who bike is prioritized. Mm -hmm.
1: And do you think that means making it painful to drive a car? San Francisco has a transit-first policy where they will build a a building with uh, 200 condos and 50 parking places, that sort of thing. you think that... that Pay, that actively driving a car should be made more inconvenient and difficult.
4: I think taking transit, walking, and biking should be made easier. <laughs> and um, I think you know, looking at it through that lens is is the one where um, you know you're really focusing on the car and the necessity of the car. And I think transit first policies, designing our streets for people who walk and bike, really is flipping that equation on its head and saying we value those modes because of their many benefits. And if we make it attractive and easy. Um, uh, we'll see it, uh, people are able to get around just as easily without a car.
1: Amy Harcourt, uh, there's Apple built a huge new billion dollar campus and building. They put in a massive parking garage. Are bicycles sort of an add-on or are they actually eating into sort of the car dominance at your your corporate clients?
3: Well, sadly, bicycles are not yet quite eating into the car dominance. Um, And it is true and it has been true for a long time that cars are always prioritized and bike facilities are always an afterthought. But we are seeing a shift in that. Like Certainly over the last five years we're getting, for instance, invited in much earlier on, either with our corporate clients or by Um, real estate developers architects we're getting invited in much earlier in the process help us think through before we build it how do we build in bike friendliness where they're um, basically prioritizing that the the bike parking infrastructure um, much earlier in the process so we're not quite there but all of the early signs are there and I think we're gonna absolutely see a shift in that in a big way
1: Brian Wiedmeyer, batteries a lot of big uh, advancements in battery technology there's a battery powered bicycle whenever someone passes me these days I first looked to see if they're uh, <laughs> battery-powered. Sometimes yes, yeah, sometimes no. Uh, uh, so how's that going to change bike culture when you can kind of you know, take some of the effort out of it?
4: Yeah, well, I think electric assist bikes that have uh, the ability to be uh, powered by a battery remove some important barriers um, to physical ability, Uh, certainly in a hilly city like San Francisco, uh, the barriers of topography, uh, but also for families that want to bike with their children to school uh, or to the grocery store, um, electric assist bikes can make that possible for them. So part of the solution, I think, to some of those more difficult trips where somebody might say to themselves, I can never see myself doing this with a bike. an electric assist or motorized bike can help you do that.
3: How could I forget to mention the
6: bicycle is a good invention?
2: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about bike culture in America. You can check out our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment.
3: How could I forget to
2: mention the You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about bike culture and climate change with Amy Harcourt, founder of Bikes Make Life Better, Kaylee Quinn, co-founder and executive director of Climate Ride, and Brian Wiedenmeyer, executive director of the San Francisco Bike Coalition.
1: Here's Greg. Brian Wiedmeyer, tell us the, the story of the remaking of Times Square <laughs> and, and how, how instrumental that was in, in recreating a very important place in the American imagination and culture.
4: Yeah, the the heart of it all, right? And um, if you think about Times Square, what's, what's its image in the, the public imagination is this place with bright lights and and, uh, crowded streets, right? Um, What you had happen in New York City a few years back was you had a mayor, so you had a leader who had a vision, Michael Bloomberg, and was willing to invest his political capital and resources in remaking New York City into a more people-friendly place and and ultimately a safer place. And um, he hired somebody, a woman named Jeanette Sadiq Khan, as his transportation commissioner, um, who really uh, was a problem solver, is still a problem solver, um, and had a vision for Times Square of uh, removing autos from that space and really opening it up to people walking and biking. And they started out by doing that just as a pilot. So this is the power of a pilot. You're not necessarily saying you're going to make a permanent change to our city streets, you're going to try something out. And you can do it cheaply with paint and, you know, removable concrete barriers. And they tried it out and lo and behold, people loved it. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, chaos did not ensue. The world didn't end. People flocked to Times Square in even greater numbers. And so they have just finished making those pilot changes permanent in Times Square.
1: There's some places where cars have been pushed out. I'm thinking of the Santa Monica, Third Street promenade where people walk and there are no cars of course there's huge parking garages all around it where people Mm -hmm. drive to to go there Uh, what's the balance because if there's no car traffic then there's no business we've
4: we've talked a lot about transportation Mm -hmm. Uh, we haven't talked much about the built environment right about how we build housing how we build we would talk a little bit about how we build workplaces and what apple's doing down in silicon valley but um, you know i think the key there is really making sure that we're smart about our land use and that um, we're building in density. So you talked about, you know, uh, new developments that don't have as much car parking. Well, if you do that densely enough and you put them next to shops and jobs and places where people want to go, they don't need to drive there and then park their car and get on a bike. So I think that land use and transportation planning go hand in hand. Yeah. Amy Hartford.
3: Yeah, if you look at um Amsterdam, we think of Amsterdam as being, you know, the holy grail of bike friendly, which it is, but it wasn't in the seventies. Mm. In the seventies it was entirely car centric. And, you know, their entire transformation included um, disincentives for bringing your car into the city center and creating areas that are only bike and ped and look what's happened over the decades.
1: London recently pledged a billion dollars for bike infrastructure. Yeah. They have congestion pricing. That doesn't go over so well in the United States.
4: Yeah. It hasn't yet. Um, <laughs> exactly. Not yet. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, it's going to take another bold visionary leader like a Michael Bloomberg or um, Sadiq Khan, who's the mayor of London, uh, to come up with a proposal and, and take a risk and try it and put the resources behind it
1: and that and also but it ultimately comes to people deciding that comes up in San Francisco mm-hmm. congestion pricing got to pay more to come into downtown people don't like it the merchants Union Square fancy high-end uh, shops they don't like it because they're a destination people driving into mm-hmm. San Francisco there seems like there's lots of powerful forces against it including democracy
4: yeah. Well, uh, listen, we talk about a shared resource. Our streets are a public space and how we use those public spaces is always open to a political process. And that's the fun part of this job. Right. Um, but I, I would go back to that idea of a pilot and trying something out and seeing if it works without making it a permanent change first.
1: Kaylee Quinn, what's your vision? If the climate ride right is successful, what does the world look like?
0: Well, that would be (laughs) terrific. We'd all be biking, there'd be clean air for everyone, jobs, job creation. I think when you look at Climate Ride, I like to look at in terms of what was the model we chose. It was using the bicycle as as a way to jumpstart philanthropy for a sector that is woefully underfunded so less than three percent of charitable giving in the united states even goes to the environment and that includes animal welfare so of the nearly 400 billion dollars that foundations and people give to causes less than three percent goes to the environment bike coalitions i don't even think even registers (laughs) education and health get the line uh religion about 40 (laughs) percent, and then uh, health and human services and then arts humanities culture um and then environment and you have so, rides
1: into Washington D.C. Other places do. you're trying to affect policy. What do you? Tr- you know, the, there's uh, you have different rides around the country: Montana, Boston, California. What's the policy angle? You try to get Congress uh, to. We
0: do on our D.C. ride. We give people a voice, meeting the representatives in person, which most Americans have not done in D.C. So that that is a very powerful experience for people being involved in the public process. Uh, and then also the grants that we give to bike coalitions. About 30% of our grants go to bike coalitions, and then. Uh, climate Climate action groups and environmental groups, the other 70%. And the idea is, you know, use those funds in a way that can help advance your emissions because so much activity is happening on a local level uh, while we have these larger um, climate action programs on a national level. So, primarily, it's when you look at other causes, things like uh, health and disease, for example, they have thousands of rides. And the top 10 events in the US raise $1.6 billion a year. And we at Climate Ride are really the only event on a national scale working for environmental and transportation justice issues. So I look at that as an incredible opportunity. When we're talking about let's move from 1% to 11% of people riding bikes, I see it as a let's move from a million dollars to a billion dollars in grants.
1: Interesting that, yeah, there's lots of rides for every disease, has a ride, mm-hmm. but environmental things, not, not so much. When I was out on the Climate Ride, I spoke with some cyclists about their story.
6: My name is Shamani Dana. I'm the founder and CEO of Dana Inc. Climate Ride has been a passion of mine since it's the only annual charity event in the country that raises funds for the environment, sustainability, bike advocacy, and climate change. My name is Laura Torres. I'm doing the climate ride as an NPCA staff representative. We are the National Parks Conservation Association. Climate change is affecting many communities. It's affecting the national parks, so it's an important issue for our organization.
7: Dirk Rosen, Marine Applied Research and Exploration, which we call MARE. I was on a research ship for several weeks right before the ride, and so I used an extra cycle and found out that that's not a good proxy for a real bicycle.
6: I think it's a great challenge, and after a while, of course, it's mind of a body. But you know, how many of us get to really breathe in this natural beauty, right? And, and it's something to be said about having the time and to be amongst amazing people doing such good in the world. Two organizations who are really doing amazing work around the LA River are Amigos de los Rios, and there's also the Friends of the Los Angeles River, and we are supporting their effort um, to bring revitalization to the river, to bring back native species, uh, to create a healthy ecosystem a lot more closer to most of the communities in Los Angeles that's accessible.
7: The warming of the ocean is a big issue, and the methane gas that's seeping out of our feedlots is uh, blanketing the earth and causing temperatures to rise, and the one taking the brunt of that is the ocean. So ocean temperatures are rising, it's causing some stress and disease and death in some of the animals, toxic algal blooms in certain parts of the ocean, and migrations of animals to other places.
6: Most people don't realize the whole entire fashion apparel industry is the second most polluting industry in the world. We. Make use of dyes to color the fabric, and you can actually take a look at the rivers in some of the developing countries and see what the next fad color is.
1: We finished a 100-mile ride today. How was that for you? Was it your first century? I've done two with Climate Ride and one uh, with the
7: Oakland Unified School District. I was really glad I did it. It was beautiful territory, and I couldn't believe how many grapevines there were along the end, sucking that
1: river dry. Well, after 100 miles, you never know what you're going to say. (laughs) Those were some voices from the climate ride. We're going to go to our audience questions and invite you to join us and briefly state your name and uh, and your question.
0: Hi, my name is Jeannie. I'm a city planning consultant, and I work with communities that are trying to retrofit some of their streets Mm -hmm. and often run into challenges between bikes, pedestrians, and buses in particular trying to pull in and out of some of these um, changes to the street with changes to where bicycles are oriented. So what do you think about all streets being for all modes versus having streets that are more transit oriented versus streets that are more bicycle oriented?
4: Brian Wiedemeyer? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think um, uh, every city is unique. And I don't want to say that um, one set of road use standards that might work here in San Francisco um, uh, may be completely different from something that works in Cleveland. So um, uh, I don't want to make too many broad blanket statements. But what I will say is that we've seen a lot of examples of street design where um, different modes of transportation have been integrated in really smart ways. So for instance, a uh, transit boarding island in the middle of the street with a bike lane between it and the sidewalk so that you have physical protection, you have a safe and uh, nice place for people to wait for the bus, and you have a nice wide sidewalk for people walking. So I think um, there are some really innovative uh, examples across our country of, of the ways that urban planners have been able to tackle this problem and, and really accommodate as many modes as possible and not try to pit different road users against one another, because when that happens, nobody wins.
1: It gets pretty, yeah, pretty fierce out there. Let's go to our next question in Climate One.
7: Hello, Austin McNerney with the National Interscholastic Cycling Association. Thank you very much for your efforts um, improving cycling uh, our communities and ultimately our lives. Um, as an organization that's very invested in trying to improve uh, cycling for youth and opportunities for younger generations, which I think are critical in this issue in order to change the dialogue within families and uh, grow the next uh, sort of set of adults who ride. Curious what suggestions you have from the communities that you're working in uh, or examples of where youth cycling is working, and how do we improve that in this country? Who'd like to tackle that, youth cycling? I
0: will. I think the improvement of getting safe routes to school is an incredibly vital program in every community, so supporting that. And a lot of it is about, I see it in my town, it's about... Educating other families about it, um, you know, families that are driving recklessly idling, you know, <laughs> around the schools, you know, tailpipes at the playground. Um, so I think that is the first place to start. I also see a lot of mountain biking programs developing, particularly in my area to get kids on bikes in a very athletic way at a young age. Those are growing very rapidly.
3: Yeah. But, and to add to Maybe something, yeah, when Brian, when you were talking about um, e-assist bikes mm-hmm. and that really helping to facilitate a lot of those everyday trips, um, parents who can take on that and start taking children to school when they're very young or taking them on trips, and that really begins to habituate that whole attitude of mm-hmm. this, is what, this is how we do it. It becomes unremarkable, and that's what I think we're striving for.
0: They said the car culture we live in, that when they ask parents, you know, why don't you ride with your kids to school? It's, uh, you know, it's first, uh, well, there's safety. And then one of the next ones is weather. Yeah. And, you know, the weather is, you know, been, you know, it rains some days. It's sunny some days <laughs> it snows some days. That's kind of not changed much since the fifties, but we are so used to being in cars now that just even breaking down that barrier of being right. outside is a challenge.
1: Let's go to our next question. Uh, my name's Carlos. This is a question. You said that you took a, uh, three hour course that made you more comfortable What did they teach you in that course to make you more comfortable?
3: Oh, that's such a good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, Everything about how to safely navigate streets. And so it was a lot of what are the rules of the road when you're a cyclist on the street and how do you interact with cars? So one of the things I remember strongly was I thought that I was safer if I hugged the curb. You know, being out of the way of the cars in the lane. And what I learned was as I was hugging a curb, I would hug the curb and then come out to go around the parked cars, hug the curb. I was doing just the opposite because cars behind me see a cyclist come out, disappear, come out, disappear or hugging cars. You know, if the cars are parked along um, the side, you know, perfect example of where you get doors. So I learned all of the ways to, um, for instance, take a lane Like, it's actually okay as a cyclist. It's legal, it's good, it's fine. You can take that lane like you're a car, and you're actually a lot safer. Um, Learning how to um, navigate intersections, that's a big one. You know, what are all the various ways to do safe left-hand turns or take yourself through the crosswalks if doing a left is not uh, safe? All of those sorts of things.
1: Getting doored is when I car passenger opens up a door and and the bicyclist runs into it yeah it does feel safer Uh, we're getting close to the end and i want to ask each of you um climate can be sometimes overwhelming there's been a lot of rough news lately kaylee quinn what gives you hope knowing that how much carbon pollution humanity's put up in the sky that we can bend those curves and stabilize the climate for
5: our kids
0: i think right now is an important time and when i look at climate ride in particular, the diversity we're seeing grow on the rise, our work with the bike coalitions to bring teams to the ride that reflect their diversity of their communities. Mm -hmm. I think right now, with all the changes that are happening and the, the activism people feel and the coalescing of all of these movements together, it's a powerful voice. And I would say to any woman, person of color, or young person, get on boards. Get on school boards, your local chamber of commerce, get involved because your voice matters more now than it ever has. And it'll be a big part of this shift happening much faster.
1: So there's been no despair because uh, Trump pulled out of Paris and the fossil fuels are being revived, that sort of well, thing? Well,
0: the news this week of all the cities signing on board and mm-hmm. saying we're going to move this forward, this is happening at a city level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is not happening at a national level with our, with our administration and the government in place now and visionary leaders will drive it forward but i really think it's the voice as i said of this next generation coming up particularly diverse voices that are going to change this paradigm fastest
1: amy harcourt what gives you hope that this monumental challenge that we're up to it yeah
3: it's it's very similar i think where we are today what's coming from the white house has really galvanized people on a very grassroots level and i feel very hopeful because i think there are small changes we can make. So I think very specifically in my realm of influence, it's helping, frankly, put more butts on bikes. You know, how do I, how do I enable that? And I read a statistic where it's like, um, if everybody in the country who um, works five miles or less from their home, so their bike commute is five miles or less, if everyone in that situation rode their bike just one day a week and left their car at home, it's the equivalent of taking a million cars off the road to help propagate that message so that everybody can say, I could do that. I actually can make that change. Part of our bikes make life better credo. Part of it is um, one bike makes a difference. Many bikes shape the future. And that's what gives me hope. Brian, we hope.
4: Yeah, you know, uh, it's tough right now. Um, social media, this thing that was supposed to bring us together more than ever has isolated us and polarized us to a degree that we haven't seen. Um, And I do find hope in in riding my bike and being out among people and interacting with them in a way that I wouldn't behind the barrier of an automobile. um, uh, You see your community reflected, you have conversations that you wouldn't otherwise have. So, you know, the act of riding gives me hope.
2: Greg Dalton has been talking with Brian Wiedenmeyer, executive director of the San Francisco Bike Coalition, Amy Harcourt, founder of Bikes Make Life Better, and Kaylee Quinn, co-founder and executive director of Climate Ride, which mobilizes cyclists around the country to raise awareness about clean energy. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.
1: Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.